Anyway, so the desert fathers and mothers were extreme monks, and they practiced a tradition of faith really called asceticism, which means that they avoided all kinds of indulgences or pleasure. Um, They sold all of their possessions. They really avoided sleeping too much. They definitely avoided good food and even taking baths. Um, They hoped that by avoiding everything that was really comfortable, they could start to not just avoid temptation, um, but be able to be more holy and resist the sins of the world. So this is really why they moved into the desert, to just spend all their time doing nothing but simple work and prayer and worship and Bible reading. Now, their extremism makes them a little bit of a, a mixed bag of wisdom, as you can imagine, but there's no denying their devotion to Jesus. But one of the desert fathers, his name was Isidore the priest, and he said that for 40 years he had been tempted, but he had never given in to covetedness, to coveting, or to anger. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't made it 40 years without giving in to anger. Um, I haven't even made it 24 hours, if I'm being honest. And I'm assuming that none of us are jumping at the chance to spend 40 years out in the desert without taking a bath um, to learn how to resist the temptations of sin. But all of us as Christians, we want to resist temptation, don't we? After all, I mean, temptation comes for us nonstop, continually. And we continually hear the whispers of Satan and the enemy in our ears. So how can we resist the pull of sin? This morning, we're going to study the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And we're going to see three primary things that Satan whispers in our ears and also whispers in Jesus's as well. And because what we're going to do as we see, we're going to look how Jesus responds to them because this passage is not just to remind us only of how Jesus was our perfect Savior, but it also teaches us how we too can avoid falling into temptation. Now, we can follow the example of Jesus and learn how to resist the enemy's voice. And so our passage this morning is in Luke chapter 4. Um, it is the first 13 verses, and as is our habit, I'm, I'm going to read it all so that we can hear from God's Word before we hear from me. Um, so if you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. And he said to him, To you I will give all authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be in this place this morning. Lord, would you help us to hear your voice? Would your voice be louder than the fire and the earthquakes and the rumbling of trains? 
Lord, whatever the voices that we hear um, this morning from outside of us or inside our own hearts, would you quiet them? Or would you help us to hear what you have to say to us this morning? And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So if you're taking notes in, in your bulletin, what we see is the, the first um, whisper that Satan says is he whispers that God is not enough. That Satan whispers God is not enough. And we see this isn't said outright by Satan, but it is what he implies in his questions and in his temptations. And it's uh, the question is what we hear repeatedly whispered in our own ears. Is, is God really going to provide for us? Is he really enough? And I'm referring to these things as whispers because Satan rarely says outright what he means. Right? He is the father of lies and he does not talk straight. Um, and today the enemy also primarily speaks to us in whispers. I don't know about you, I have not had Satan appear before me and tempt me with something. Demons don't normally do this. If they did, we might be a little better at resisting them. Most of the time they just have to whisper in our ears and we fall. And they do this so we don't even recognize that it's them. Well, let's look at the first temptation of this passage in verse 1. So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. And being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. Notice right away it says that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. It's just a reminder that temptation comes even for Jesus. And it comes even when Jesus is on a spiritual high. Temptation doesn't just come for us when things are going bad. You will find the temptation to sin everywhere you go, no matter your spiritual maturity or how full or not full you are of the Holy Spirit, it comes. It says he was hungry, and I would be hungry too. Okay, for 40 days, Jesus has been fasting in the wilderness. And this account we have of these temptations, it could just be the last three temptations before Satan flees. It could be the three primary temptations that happen during the course of this days. I really believe this is 40 days of nonstop temptation that we see the enemy pushing Jesus. Because it's during this time he is being tempted by the devil, kind of that whole time. But let's look at the first one that, that it mentions. Christ is hungry. And so verse 3, the devil says to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So what's going on here? Why is this a temptation? Well, you know, uh, I don't think that Satan is tempting Jesus to prove his divinity, prove you are God. And I don't think it's Satan tempting Jesus to just use his power as God selfishly either. But look back to verse 1. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So the Holy Spirit has led Jesus to go here. God has told Jesus, I want you to spend 40 days fasting, eating and drinking nothing. So this temptation is not about making stones into bread. It's about going against God's command to fast. It's to eat when God has said not to eat. And I can't imagine how hungry Jesus must have been in that moment. Okay, I wrestled growing up. I often had to cut weight. So there's a lot of days and times I went without eating. Longest I ever went without food was two days, and it was brutal. I hated it. I hated every single minute of it. All I did the whole time was think and fantasize about food. And what I could eat, and what I wished I could eat. And as soon as I'm done making weight, how good that sandwich is going to taste. Okay, Jesus goes even longer than that. He eats nothing during these 40 days. Not a single crumb. Not a nibble. Not a lick. Not, a, not any cheating. And that whole time Satan tempts him, here, take and eat. 
Ignore God's command to fast. And, but ultimately what Satan is whispering here is he's telling you, God isn't enough. You need more. Satan's saying, look, you're hungry. God's way doesn't work. Make yourself some food. God isn't giving you what you really need. 40 days of doing nothing but spending time with the Holy Spirit isn't good. You should eat some bread. That would be much better. But how does Jesus respond in verse 4? Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. What Jesus says back is Jesus says that God is enough. Jesus says that God is enough. And he's saying that God is even better than food. Okay, all of us have to eat. All of us have to drink, right? Or, or we die. You can't, you can't go this long without the miraculous hand of God. But without God, too, we are dead. And we need God more than we need bread, more than we need even water. Because spiritual death is infinitely worse than physical death. And having no food is better than having no God. And this is the main reason Christians were supposed to fast. It's supposed to be a regular part of our spiritual disciplines. It's to remind us that God is what we need. That we need Him more than we need food. That we can't live by food alone. We need God more than anything. That we need the Holy Spirit. But the temptation of, of Satan is to whisper and to lie. And so many of the temptations are from this very lie of God not being enough. The lie that the created things can give us what the Creator cannot. And we're tempted to look outside of God for what satisfies us. We talked about this a lot in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, right? We chase things like money, pleasure, power, fame, and more. And we do so because we think, oh, these things are going to satisfy my hunger. They're going to fill that peace inside of me that's empty. But they are all vaporous and of vanity. They'll satisfy your stomach for a moment, and then it fades and disappears. What Satan has to offer and what he offers Jesus as well, it's, it's like an elaborate feast. He stands in front of a table filled with fresh food, fruit, with beautifully cooked meat, and elaborate dishes like you see on those cooking shows. And, but this feast is sin. And it's, it's all the things that we're tempted by because they look so delicious. Things like money and sex, pornography, freedom of just do whatever you want to do or be true to yourself no matter what it costs you or others. And these and many other sins, they look like delicious food. They tempt us. They, they pull us because we're hungry for them. But they're deceptive. So you can take a bite of it. It'll taste great, but you're going to need more. And no matter how much you eat, your stomach will always be hungry. It will never be full. But Jesus reminds us that God is enough. And that Jesus is the fount of living water. And that whoever drinks from him will never thirst again. Because God is enough. So our first temptation is to doubt that God is enough, but Jesus reminds us, says, no, God is enough. Our second temptation, it's one of worship, actually. And Satan whispers that God's way doesn't work. Satan whispers to us that God's way doesn't work. So this is kind of at the heart of what Satan tells Jesus next, and he's trying to get Jesus off of God's path for his life and onto a different path. Verse 5, the devil took him and it showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. It seems like with Satan either takes Jesus physically or takes him in a vision to a place where you can look at all of the kingdoms in the world. I think it's probably a vision. In verse 6, and he said to him, to you, I will give all of this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I can give it to whom I will. Satan says he's in charge of all the kingdoms on the world because God has given the control of the world over to Satan. 
Now, ultimately, God is in control, but because of our sinfulness, Satan is allowed to rule for now. Verse 7, he says, If you then will worship me, Jesus, this will all be yours. Satan offers to give the kingdom over to Jesus. Because Jesus didn't just come um, to take over to save us. He also came to establish the kingdom of God. This is one of the themes of the book of Luke. And he came to conquer every single kingdom on earth. This is part of his mission. It's part of what he came to do. But Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut. Satan says, well, Jesus, God's way isn't really going to work. I got a better way. After all, I mean, what's God's plan? God's plan to, to establish and to conquer all the kingdoms of the world is very slow. And it's counterintuitive. Well, Jesus, I mean, he already purchased that victory we believe and that conquering still hasn't happened yet 2,000 years later. We're still waiting. And slowly unfolding, and it might not fully unfold for another 2,000 years if Jesus tarries. But Satan says, hey, why don't we skip all that waiting and just get that done now? Just worship me real quick and then you can, you can have it. Do you really want to wait thousands of years, Jesus, or do you want to have all the kingdoms now? God's plan, it also involves suffering, a lot of suffering. Jesus' mission isn't just slow, but the primary suffering Jesus is going to endure is on the cross with lots of other sufferings in between. And the torture that he's going to endure and have to suffer before he even gets there. He's going to have constant conflict with religious leaders, the people who should know better than anyone that he's, what he's there for. There's going to be crowds who try to kill him, not just at the end, but throughout his ministry. His own disciples won't always believe him or understand what he's saying. His family is going to think that he's crazy and lost his mind and try to lock him up and keep him at home. He's going to be mocked and spit upon. He'll have his back torn open as he's flogged beyond recognition, and he's going to suffocate to death naked in front of a crowd that jeers at him and mocks him as he slowly dies. That is unimaginable suffering that the God of the universe decides to endure on our behalf. And Satan offers a shortcut. He says, hey, how about we don't do any of that? How about instead of all of that suffering, why don't you just bow down to me real quick? Just do it my way. Worship me, I'll give you whatever you want. It seems like Satan's offering a compromise to hand over the kingdoms. It's really just a trap. And the temptation is to circumvent God's plan and His timing, to get the glory without the cross, to get power without suffering, to be the king without having to serve. But Jesus says no. In verse 8, Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only Him shall you serve. So Jesus says, Now serve God only. And Satan whispers, God's way won't work, but Jesus says, We will serve God only. Because to compromise with sin really ultimately is to worship a different God. It's a worship problem. It's not really a compromise. It is bowing down to Satan. And Jesus, he quotes Deuteronomy again. If you notice, all of these quotations are actually from chapters 6 and 8 of Deuteronomy, um, which is all about um, recounting Israel's own wandering in the wilderness when they failed their temptations. But Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. He says, I will not compromise. He says, we will worship and I will serve God alone. I'm not going to turn from this path. He's not going to avoid the suffering that's coming to him, even though he would like to. It's a human desire. All of us would like to avoid that kind of suffering, wouldn't we? I mean, Jesus, the night before his crucifixion and his praying, he will be sweating drops of blood and anxiety. And still, he says, no. He's still willing to suffer. Because Jesus understands that to follow Satan's path is to worship him. 
And you cannot serve two masters. You either serve God or you serve someone else. But today we face the same temptation all the time, don't we? I mean, we look at the world and we think, well, hey, God's way clearly isn't working. Look at the mess this is. And maybe, but the best thing that any of us can do in a wicked and a lost world is to faithfully follow Jesus in our ordinary life, to stand firm, to not compromise, and to worship and to serve God. And if we're honest, all of us want glory and power without suffering. We want to grow in our faith without any struggle. Even we want shortcuts to spiritual growth. We want other ways to become like Jesus that are easier than having to read my Bible all the time. Easier than going to church every week. Easier than having to listen to somebody preach. Easier than having to sing worship music that I might not like. And Satan's always happy to offer us shortcuts. But the wide path of Satan's way, it leads to death. And only the narrow way of Jesus and service to God leads to eternal life. So look at the last whisper of Satan. We'll be here for, for a little while. The, his third temptation is this. Satan whispers, you can't trust God. Satan whispers that you can't trust God. Because really, um, every time we're tempted to test God, it comes down to this. So we'll see that we don't believe Him. That we don't think we can trust Him. We're tempted to test Him because we think that He is a liar. And you may notice if you are familiar with this passage, if you've read it before, if you've read the temptation of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a slight difference in the order of these temptations. Okay, and that's intentional. It's not because they forgot. It's not because they got confused. They made an intentional choice because they're making different theological points with why, they want, with why Luke has this temptation last. And you find the reason to this, I think, is in verse 9 where he says, and he took him to Jerusalem. Right there is the key. Luke is very intentional in his geography, as we'll see as we continue to study the book. So the entire gospel of Luke, Luke is um, geographically heading towards Jerusalem. He starts here, but then next he's going to be ministering in Galilee. And then he will leave Galilee and he will head towards Jerusalem. And the climax will come when he's finally in Jerusalem at his death and resurrection. And so Luke changes the order to keep this emphasis. And look at the rest of the verse. And he took him and he goes to Jerusalem. And he sets him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to him, hey, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. So Jesus is taken here again, whether in vision or reality, to the top of the temple. And we think that the highest point of the temple was probably right over a ravine. A ravine that looked over a, a valley. So it's not just a big building you're jumping off of. It's a long way down. Just looking down from there probably would have made you queasy. I get queasy just standing on top of a stepladder, so I, you, know, you wouldn't catch me up there. And as he's up there, Satan tells Jesus to jump. And it's not a, a jump to kill himself or to just end his hunger. He says in verse 10, For it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And then he quotes another scripture, For on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan himself is quoting the Bible. Jesus has been quoting the Bible in reference and in response to Satan throughout this whole time. Now the devil uses Scripture itself to tempt our Savior. And the Scripture he quotes, both of these are from Psalms 91. They're 91 verses 11 and 12. And this is a deep reference. 
Okay, because this is not an obvious reference to the Messiah. Even if you know your Bibles, if you read Psalm 91, you might not immediately think of Jesus when you read those. It would take special knowledge of the Bible to see that. Knowledge that the enemy has. So Satan is showing off his knowledge of Scripture here. But don't miss what's happening. Um, and a professor who always used to say that every heretic has Bible verses. Okay, the, the devil himself has Bible verses. And just because somebody quotes a Bible verse doesn't mean they're using it correctly, that they understand it. Just because somebody says, oh, this is biblical, that doesn't make it holy and righteous. Just because somebody uses some Greek or Hebrew words doesn't mean that they're right. The demons probably know the Bible better than we do. Don't be fooled. Always check, study, look at it for yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit, read other scriptures to see, is that, is that really what this says? Because Satan and our enemy is always happy to misuse and manipulate scripture in order to tempt us to sin. But what's the temptation here? I don't think it's a temptation to show off Jesus' power, right? Because that would be a miraculous spectacle if Jesus threw himself down and then stood up and was fine. And it's not just because it would be a public scene at the most important place. Instead, what is happening is this is a temptation to test God, to not trust Him, to see if those promises in the Psalms really are true. He's saying, is God really going to protect you? If you jumped, would angels really come and catch you before your foot hit the ground? And so Jesus responds, and He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, and Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord God, the Lord your God, to the test. Jesus says, don't test God. Don't test Him. And there's something, I think, of a double fulfillment going on here. First, Jesus quotes this as a reminder, hey, we're not supposed to test God. But this is also a rebuke of Satan, because Satan is testing God himself right now with all of these temptations and testing, which is partially why in Luke's account then, right after this, that the devil flees and goes away. But Jesus' quotation here, in Deuteronomy, it refers to an incident in Exodus 17, where God first said that they should not test God. And in that story, Israel is refusing to trust that God will provide for them. They've been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and they are wandering and on their way, but they're thirsty. It's been a while since they've had something to drink. And they demand that Moses and God give them water now. Say, so, oh, what, what good is it following you? We'd be better off in Egypt. And in God's grace, He actually does give them water. He miraculously gives it to them from a rock, but He tells them that they should not test Him. They should trust Him. Now, Jesus could have jumped, and God really would have saved Him. But it would have shown that Jesus didn't really trust God's Word. Because true trust doesn't demand proof. Jesus doesn't put himself in unnecessary danger just to see if God is going to trust him. Right? Satan's basically asking God to do like a, or Jesus to do a trust fall with God. If you don't know what a trust fall is, you know, you kind of, you stand with your back to somebody and you cross your arms and you fall backwards and you're supposed to trust that they'll catch you before you hit the ground. I've always hated trust falls. Okay? I, I hate them a lot. I just think they're one of the dumbest things Ever. I, I really don't like most games that groups like that kind of thing you get roped into. I don't really like any of them. But this one's always seemed really silly to me. Okay, why do I have to put myself in danger to see if I trust you or not? 
How about I just trust you? And then I don't fall. And then we go about our day. Right? Why do I need to put that to the test? And what Jesus says, look, God's not interested in practice trust falls. We're not to trust, we're just to trust him. Just trust him. Don't test him. Don't put your arms backwards and fall and say, well, God, I hope you catch me. You said you would. He says, no, no, no. Don't do that. Don't go stand above a cliff and say, God, you know, you're in control and I can't die before you want me to. So I'm going to jump off this cliff. And if you want to save me, I know you can. So I'm just going to trust you. That would be foolish. And God might, but he also might not. Do not test him. And all of that, it's a manner of testing God. Our relationship with God is not a trust fall exercise. We don't fall to see if God will catch us. Instead, we just trust him. He's already made the greatest act of showing how much he cares for us and loves us by sending his son Jesus to die for us and to save us. And this whole book is filled with all these stories and promises and reasons that we can trust God and all the people who have put their faith and their trust in him and been rewarded for it. We should trust him too. Verse 13, and when the devil ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, we won't see Satan again until we get to Luke 22, verse 3. And that passage is when he enters into Judas and leads him to betray Jesus. He waits into the very end to come again. Now, at the crucifixion, Jesus again will be tempted. He'll be mocked and he'll be taunted by those who say something similar to Satan and says, hey, if you're the son of God, save yourself. Call Elijah, come down. Prove it. We hear that same whisper from Satan. We hear it on our ears all the time that we cannot trust God. And so Satan often, he tries to get us to test him. But the problem is every time you decide that I'm going to test God, you've already decided and declared that you don't trust him, that you don't believe him, that you need him to prove it. And testing God, it is a serious sin in the Bible. It is not a minor thing. When people make declarations like, well, God, if you're real, you had better do this, then, then I'll believe you. And we tell God, give me a sign that I'm supposed to do this thing that you've already commanded me to do. When we ask God to prove himself, we're testing him. Those are moments that we have accepted the enemy's words that God is not to be trusted. Now, I remember when I was young, um, I, I struggled with whether or not um, I was saved. So I remember the story of Gideon. So like Gideon, I, I prayed for physical signs. God, if I really am saved, would you do this? That then I'll know. Okay, well, that didn't work. Let me try again. Let me ask for a different sign. Well, it did, but maybe it wasn't real. So God, well, okay, if I really am saved, would you do this? The problem, like the problem with Gideon's fleece, is it was testing God. If you go back and read that passage, it says, Gideon himself says, God, well, forget, I know I'm testing you, but... It's wrong. It revealed Gideon's lack of faith. What Gideon, what I should have done is just trust what God said in his word instead of asking for something else. There's all other kinds of ways that we can be tempted to not trust God. You might be tempted to not trust God with your finances. You can say things like, okay, God, if you really want me to be generous, you really want me to tithe and give to the poor, um, you're going to have to give me some more money so that I can do that. So you do that, prove it to me, and, and then I will follow your ways. But you can be tempted to not trust that God's word is true. You can see or read things that are confusing or hear voices that tell you, oh, there's mistakes, there's errors, you can't trust this old book. You can be tempted to not trust that God's way is best. You can feel ourselves being pulled towards a life of sin or doing whatever we want because it promises us something better. If you're not a Christian, all of this is definitely a temptation for you. 
I mean, better yet, really, the whole way of life that you're living is not trusting God. Because you haven't yet put your faith and your trust in Jesus as your only Savior. And I can understand that hesitation. Um, for a long time, that's what kept me from really becoming a believer. Because I didn't really know if I could trust God. It was a risk. And I was scared. I didn't know if he was safe. I didn't know if he would really keep his promises. I didn't really know if it would be worth it. Um, but I'm here to tell you, echoing with Jesus, that he does keep his promises. That God is good. That God loves you. That God cares for you and that you can trust him. And last week, our, our call to worship was from Hebrews 4, verses 16 through 18. And it, it reminded us of the truth of one of the reasons we can trust God is because Jesus has felt the same temptations we have. He's heard the same whispers in his ears. He's felt the tug in his own heart, and he's resisted. He said no. Well, we give in. He went into the wilderness, and he beat the devil. And when he went back into the grave, he beat him again. And when he comes back, he'll do it for the third and the final time. And because of this, one of the things that Jesus does is he empowers us that if we have put our faith in him, that we can withstand temptation. He promises us a way out in his word. You don't have to fast for 40 days. You don't have to become the greatest Christian of all time. You don't even have to have tons of scripture memorized, though that would help and be wise. You just have to run to Jesus, and he gives an escape. I have to do is call on his name. Sometimes when, when I feel the pull of sin, all I can do is just say the name of Jesus because I don't have enough strength to pray anything better because I'm on the edge. When you feel temptation, you can just cry out, Jesus, help me. Or you can just say, Jesus, please. So this morning we've seen a couple of the temptations that the enemy whispers in our ears. He whispers that God isn't enough. He whispers that God's way doesn't work, and he whispers that you can't trust God. They are all lies from the father of lies. Don't believe them and heed Jesus' words. Now, the, uh, the men on the shield's side of the family, my side of the family, we don't really have good hearing. Uh, mine's better than all of my brothers and my dad. They're way more deaf than me, but it's still not great, and it's particularly bad in crowds or loud places. I can get overwhelmed in places that have a lot of noise and I have a really hard time listening. Um, in order for me to hear you, if there's a lot of other people talking, I have to focus. I've got to stare at you, I've got to read your lips, and I've got to try and drown out and turn my ears off for the rest of what's going on so that I can, I can listen and hear. And it takes a lot of energy. That is much of what we have to do in our own lives too, whether your hearing is bad like mine or, or much better. Because Satan's voice is loud, and his whisper threatens to drown out everything. And it's, it's the wind and the earthquake and the fire, but God's voice is still speaking. But we have to decide to ignore those whispering temptations of our enemy and heed the voice of Jesus. That still low whisper that reminds us of the truth and reminds us of who we are. So ignore the voice of the enemy and listen to the voice of Jesus to resist temptation. I'm going to close us in prayer and invite our worship team to come up and lead us one more time. Lord, I, I ask for your, your help and your aid. Um, as we read the story of, have read of how you are, are sinless, 
And you resisted all the temptations of the enemy, not just here, but throughout the rest of your life. Uh, Lord, we know and have seen so many times where we did not resist. Where we fell even when the temptation of the enemy didn't have to work that hard just because we wanted to. But Lord, we, we want to resist. We want to trust you. We want to believe that you are enough. Lord, would you help us? Because we need you. We desperately need you. All of us are going to be tempted and hear so many whispers in our ears before the next hour is over. We will only be able to resist if you help us because we can't do it on our own. Help us to focus and to hear your voice and to heed it. We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing about the love of God one more time. How wonderful is the love of God. Um, I'm going to remind you we're going to take a quick break from the book of Luke. Um, it's going to take us a while to get through the book, and I told you we were going to take a couple breaks. Um, we're going to take a break for four weeks, and we're going to look at the book of Malachi um, next week, which is all about the nation being filled with spiritual apathy. Um, so I'm really excited to study that book, but so that's, that's where we'll be, and then we'll go, we'll go back to Luke. Um, but hear this benediction um, from the God who loves you in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you. Go in peace.